Welcome to the Mill Creek View, Tennessee podcast with your host, Steve Abramowitz, Editor-in-Chief of the Mill Creek View newspaper. Welcome back to the Mill Creek View, Tennessee podcast. We are focusing on the volunteer state and our nation today with always an interesting person making a positive change in our community. This time, special guest, Bill Osier. But first, for more information about the Stable of Mill Creek View podcast, visit us anywhere you get your podcasts and socials, except for Twitter, at Mill Creek View, Tennessee, Washington, and Florida. While you're there, please subscribe. It's totally free to you. Welcome to our People in News episode, where I interview people who are making an impact and are lovers of truth. Today, we are talking with Bill Osier. Bill Osier is a Nashville native, a unicorn. He graduated from Vanderbilt University in 1966 and from Vanderbilt Law School in 1969. He went to work for the Nashville law firm of Bass, Berry, and Sims, where he spent his entire career, most of it as a labor and employment lawyer representing management. Over his career, he represented employers all over the state of Tennessee, including both Fortune 500 companies and locally owned businesses. One of his major clients over the years was Vanderbilt University. Bill was selected in the first edition of Best Lawyers in America and continued to be among that list for over 35 years. Bill served on the board of directors of both the Tennessee Chamber of Commerce and Industry and Tennessee Business Roundtable. He was general counsel of the board for the Tennessee Chamber from 2008 to 2011 and chairman of the board from 2012 to 14. He retired from the practice of law at the end of 2017, and he was elected to the board of directors of the Battle of Nashville Trust beginning in 2020 and was elected president of the organization at the end of 2021. He has been a longtime student of the Civil War and the Battle of Nashville in particular. The American Battlefield Trust preserves America's hallowed battlegrounds and educates the public about what happened there and why it matters. The purpose of the American Battlefield Trust is to inspire appreciation of America, its history, and its promise of liberty through an understanding of the wars fought on its soil and of the sacrifices of earlier generations of Americans. Mr. Osier, how are you today? I'm very good, Steve. Thank you. Did I say your name correctly? You know, with a name like Abramowitz, I, I do my best. <laughs> yeah, it's been mispronounced a lot more often than it's been pronounced correctly, but Osier is fine. Osier, okay. O-Z-I-E-R, not easy to figure out on your own. Okay, well, that's great. Um, it is a bit overcast here in Franklin, Tennessee. I'm told we're in second summer in Middle Tennessee, which you've been uh, privy to for your whole life. Uh, it's cool in the mornings, blazing hot in the afternoons. Yesterday, it was like that, 100% true. I can confirm it. Uh, nothing like the weather we are going to talk about in a minute here. So before we get into the day of battle, we had Eric Jacobson on here, CEO of the Battle of Franklin Trust. Uh, the pivotal battle of the Civil War and a few days before your focus, Battle of Nashville. So I guess you're the sequel to that episode. What are your opinions of the Battle of Franklin leading up to Nashville? Well, the Battle of Franklin obviously was a disaster for the uh, Confederate Army. Uh, you know, General Hood had the goal, which has always been sort of a mystery, but he hoped to come to Nashville where the Union Army had been in uh, encamped for two years building fortresses and some building up supplies and Hood thought that if he could get to Nashville and distract the uh, Union Army from Sherman's march to the sea maybe he could even go around Nashville and get up into Kentucky and join Lee in Virginia but his uh, foresight was not very good nor was his scouting so he arrived in Franklin on the afternoon of uh, November the 30th 1864 after the letting a significant force of Union 
troops escape from uh, where they had been surrounded in Spring Hill, Tennessee, a few miles further south. So Hood was furious with his troops. And when they arrived on the hilltops overlooking the plain, which led up to Franklin itself, late in the afternoon, he sent his army on a, a mile charge across open fields, which was an absolute disaster. And with the number of men they lost and in the relatively short battle that lasted maybe three to four hours, the uh, result of his attempt to take Nashville was foregone. Concluded. Let's not jump ahead and skim the script too far. I wanted to get a little bit of a lay of the land. So how does Eric at BOFT do their battleground preservation different than yours maybe? Well, Franklin is is a, a relatively small town. It's not as small as it was for many, many years. It has undergone a lot of growth in the last 20 years. And the people in Franklin at a very early point in, in, in history, uh, sort of the mid, at least 1950s, began to realize that they're they had a battlefield that was at least salvageable a lot of it you know nothing like gettysburg or some of the uh, battlefields up in virginia but there was uh, you know not as much development where the battlefield was located in franklin as it took place in nashville so they were able to acquire two or three pretty large pieces of property and they uh, it became a, a a point of giving for a lot of the people in franklin who it's a relatively wealthy community so uh, they were able to get some property and there were some houses that were right in the middle of the battlefield that were preserved and they could use those as focal points. And the, just the lay of the land, there's a hill up on the, on the about a mile south of the city of Franklin itself, uh, Winstead Hill. And if you stand on Winstead Hill, you have a panoramic view of what where the battlefield was. And you could, if you had been there, you know, Hood watched it from that point and, you know, they, his men charged across open fields and into the teeth of the Union Army that was entrenched and had a lot of uh, artillery. Hood attacked. He didn't, his artillery had not even come up yet. So he attacked without any artillery. So it was a disaster from the, from the get-go. Wow. Uh, and so that, they, that trust bought those pieces of property and there's a, it's, just, it's two different trusts. You, you are a different trust. We are. And they are. Okay. And and what's yeah, the our dynamic? Organization, our organization was known as the uh, Battle of Nashville Preservation Society up until about three or four years ago. And they actually, right before I joined the organization as a board member, they changed the name to the Battle of Nashville Trust. But the Nashville battlefield is actually one of the larger battlefields in the Civil War. It encompassed about eight miles from west to east. But the area where the battle was fought is now covered by the most expensive residential and commercial real estate in Davidson County. So it's been it, it, you know, it, before anybody said, hey, let's try to find some pieces of property to preserve. It was really too late. Mm. So there are very few pieces that are available that were available and that have been added where there is, you know, some, some memorials and some things for people to look at. But so let me uh, set the stage for today's history lesson. So the road to the rebels Nashville disaster began two winters earlier when the Confederate leadership, both at tactical and strategic levels, surrendered Fort Henry and Fort Donelson to the advancing Joint Army-Navy team under Ulysses S. Grant. Two weeks later, Nashville fell, the first southern state capital to do so. The city was also the commercial, industrial, and social centerpiece of the region. It was called the Athens of the South. 
Gone with Nashville would be all of the upper south, especially resource-rich Middle Tennessee, where we are, with the rest of the volunteer state following by the end of 1863. Control of rivers, railroads, farms, factories, and population centers, including Nashville, Memphis, Chattanooga, and Knoxville, meant that Yankee arms had captured one of the most important areas of the nascent Confederacy. The Confederacy tried for the next two years to retake the lost ground. In fact, this was what Hood's Tennessee campaign was all about. In addition, Southern leaders and generals dreamed of wintering their armies on a frontier provided by the Ohio River. Such a dream proved impossible, but until December 1864, they never stopped trying. The Battle of Perryville, Kentucky in October 1862, the conflicts of the Murfreesboro or Stones River, Tennessee at the beginning of the year, and then the battles of Spring Hill, Franklin, and Nashville were all products of that dream. So Davidson County, Tennessee, December 15th through 16th, 1864. Tell us the weather conditions they had those two days. Well, Nashville's weather is volatile. It can be, you know, 80 degrees one day and 40 degrees the next day, but right before, right about the, the uh, Hood, Hood arrived in Nashville on December the 2nd, which happens to be my birthday, actually, of 1864. <laughs> and um, they, a cold front came through, and over the next two weeks, the temperature was in, in or around freezing or below freezing. They had freezing rain, sleet. The, the Confederate Army was very poorly equipped by that time. They had you know, fought their way up from the south, uh, they didn't have much when they left Atlanta when they started north from Alabama. So a lot of the Confederate soldiers did not have shoes or very poor shoes. They had threadbare uniforms, threadbare blankets. And, you know, for two weeks, they camped out without much in the way of rations. The Union Army on the other side was very well fed. They had the stores which supplied the whole Union Army in the south uh, in Nashville and had had, as you mentioned, from 1862 on to the time of the battle in, in December of 1864. So they were well-fed, well-equipped, well-armed, a lot of artillery. Most of the Union soldiers were equipped with repeating rifles by this time. Uh, virtually none of the Confederate soldiers had repeating rifles. So it was a, it was a mismatch uh, from the get-go. Uh, Thomas had about uh, 60,000 combatants. Uh, Hood, by the time he reached Nashville, had maybe 14 to 15,000. So it was, uh, you know, four to one when they were outmanned, outgunned and uh, outmaneuvered. So it was uh, a disaster in the making. So Confederate General John Bell Hood was just about everywhere in the Civil War. Some of the most brutal actions of the Civil War, including the breakthroughs at Gaines Mill and the worst day of all Antietam. Hood served under some of the most famous generals in the South, Lee, Longstreet, Johnston and Jackson. Can you tell us about General Hood, the man? Well, you know, Hood was, uh, Jefferson Davis liked Hood. He thought he was aggressive and he, you know, replaced Joe Johnston as the, the general in Atlanta when they were trying to retake Atlanta, which turned out to be a disaster. But uh, uh, the uh, Davis thought that Hood was an aggressive general, so he put him in, in command of the Army of Tennessee, which was the biggest army west, uh, Confederate army west of the Allegheny Mountains, and with the mission of trying to retake Nashville and possibly, as you said, get as far north as the Ohio River and maybe even join back up with Lee. But he had suffered a number of very serious wounds over his, his time in the war. You know, generals didn't 
stay back in a protected area much. A lot of them, you know, were on the front lines and suffered wounds. He had, I think he'd lost a leg and maybe part of an arm. He was in constant pain. Uh, the medication at that time was not great. So he apparently took a lot of Dilaudid and who knows what else. So he was sort of in and out of, uh, you know, being a very, very on top of his ability to command troops. And, uh, but he was determined and dogged and he was uh, willing to sacrifice his men, which he did in Franklin. And again, fortunately in Nashville, the, the losses were not nearly as bad. They uh, were in a position of, uh, you know, if they, they, they encamped and uh, built some temporary breastworks and three, five readouts that lined the western side of this line. But uh, they were just sitting there kind of waiting to figure out what they would do next. And when the Union Army decided to attack, it was a pretty short battle from that point on. Right. And he was linked to Confederate disaster after disaster. And in the waning weeks of 1864, the missed opportunity at Spring Hill gave way to a disaster on an epic scale at Franklin. And now the Confederate Army of Tennessee faced the United and Fortified Armies of the Ohio and of the Cumberland near Nashville. How confident do you think Grant and Lincoln were that Hood would fail again? They were probably fairly confident uh, of that. Uh, the, you know, considering just the number of men that he had, and the lack of equipment, the lack of uh, munitions, and uh, just his general reputation of being as sort of a reckless uh, general, they with and with the big imbalance of the of the number of troops and the fortifications, it, it was a pretty much of a foregone conclusion. You know, they had built Fort Negley, which was a, the largest interior stone fort in the uh, in the Civil War. They built a lot of fortifications along the coastline, but uh, Fort Negley was a pretty impressive uh, fort uh, built out of native stone, and had some very large cannons mounted in the in the fort which turned out not to play a role much in the uh, Battle of Nashville. They, uh, they did have enough uh, uh, information. They knew what the range was of those big guns, and they, the Confederate lines were just beyond the reach of those cannons. They fired them a few times during the battle, but you know they, they had mobile artillery. And then once they broke the line the first day and, and followed them south about a mile to the second day's line, uh, it, it was a, a total mismatch. You know, and they had a, the line was about eight miles long on the first day. And with this number of troops uh, Hood had at his disposal, they were pretty thin along that line. And then when they condensed the line a little bit between the first and second days, it was a little tighter. But by that time, you know, his men were hungry, cold, low on ammunition and low on uh, morale. And it didn't, uh, there was not much of a battle to be fought. <laughs> Why wasn't Hood more prepared? Was it because Brentwood, which was called Midway and a railway hub, was devastated? Um, I know Jefferson Davis thought Sherman could be pushed back out of Georgia by right. taking away his railroad lifeline. And as you said, outnumbered two to one. Why did he stay on offensive? Was he suicidal or trying to lose it? It certainly looked like he was suicidal, or just maybe just not in you know in possession of all of his faculties. And he he had a hot temper, and after their embarrassment at Spring Hill, you know he was determined that he was going to make the his troops pay for letting what he thought let the uh, Schofields uh, Corps escape from Spring Hill, and he was almost like punishing his troops. It seemed like I you know I can never understand over the years. Uh, why they named a, a U.S. military fort after Hood. He was, he was not a good general by anybody's definition. So. 
That's the way it goes, I guess. But, you know, Hood did have an alternative. Not many people talk about this, but he chose to send infamous now Nathan, Nathan Bedford Forrest, uh, not his main army, to take the fortified Federal Logistical Center at Murfreesboro and interrupt the Nashville to Chattanooga Railroad line. It might have been better to move the Army of Tennessee. They could have sat out winter just like General Braxton Bragg did uh, when he was fighting Major General William Rosencrantz at Stones River and nearly won. What do you make of everyone's yeah, the new... The, the terrain in Nashville where the battle was fought, it, it was hilly across the uh, from east to west of about... Uh, you know, where the lines were almost for the, for the second day. So it really did not, Nashville did not lend itself very much to a, to a cavalry battle. Uh, and he sent Forrest over to Murfreesboro, hoping that uh, you know, that would cause Thomas and Scope to send some of his troops to Murfreesboro because the dreaded Forrest was over there and would pull off some of the troops they had in, uh, in you know, to fight the battle of Nashville, but that didn't happen. Uh, they didn't, they didn't take the bait. So wow. they left everybody where they were. And uh, so it. Uh, what do you make of everyone's new villain uh, for 2023, Nathan Forrest? What, excuse me, I didn't catch your first part of that. What do you make of him in history? You know, what do you think of him as a historical figure for Tennessee? Everybody's made him a villain now. He's vilified. Yeah, you know, I've, I've read several uh, biographies of, uh, of Forrest, and there's no question. He was a gifted military mind. Uh, you know, he had no formal education, had never been in the military at all. And he was a scourge to the Union Army for four years. And he was a great at tactics. And, you know, he had he was famous for his saying, get their firstest with the mostest. He was really a mounted infantry unit. Uh, they, they rode horses so they could cover a lot of ground quicker than infantry units could. But apparently he was a great tactician. He used his uh, forces very smartly and wisely, and uh, you know he, he certainly controversial uh, as a slave trader or whatever else he was. He was mostly just a, a farmer in northern Mississippi, western Tennessee, and you know, he did own slaves, but that was not unusual at the time. And uh, you know, there's some sort of mixed reports about what his role was in forming the Ku Klux Klan. That uh, he didn't stay in it very long, apparently, but uh, uh, he was a great. Uh, military tactician and um, whether he engaged in any atrocities which he's been accused of or not i mean only history can tell but uh, he certainly was a formidable force and the union army respected him as uh, with it for his military ability yeah hood's cavalry which he was part of almost cut showfield off led by Forrest, who just arrived from the famous jonesville raid uh the saga of the spring hill affair and columbia the army right. of tennessee let slipped uh distinct advantage they they had the advantage they let it slip uh, was that another missed opportunity for hood and that resulted in the franklin disaster yeah absolutely i mean you know they had schofield's corps which was a fairly significant number of men and artillery and supplies cut off at spring hill and how they escaped is still a mystery that uh, how do you move that many men wagons horses and whatever without somebody saying hey what's going on out here and uh, that that's you know hood was furious about it and that's what most people think led to his you know assault on franklin where he basically just sacrificed his army and then what he had left he brought up to nashville and sort of and suffered the same fate you know and then at the end of the day on on the 16th of december when shy's hill fell and it, it was not a retreat i mean it was a rout uh they it was kind of every man for himself and just you know they threw down 
weapons and backpacks and ran for their lives, basically. And fortunately, uh, there was one cavalry unit that served uh, as a rear guard that protected the, 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 let them escape to the south. And there was, again, a lot of people fought the uh, Union Army for not pursuing more quickly, and they could have probably captured the whole force before they made it down to the Tennessee River and escaped across the river into northern Alabama. But uh, yeah, it was it was a, a total disaster for from the end of the battle here. And just to put an underline on Hood, and then we'll move on, his grand strategy appeared to be including the taking of Tennessee's capital, Nashville, and then moving further north into his home state of Kentucky to gather provisions and volunteers, and then plan to turn east to join Robert E. Lee's beleaguered force already in Virginia. But the reality of the situation passed Hood by, and he was simply grasping at non-existent straws, right? Yes, absolutely. Okay. So on the Union side, the overall federal commander in Nashville, Major General George H. Thomas, received uh, telegrams from Ulysses S. Grant and Abraham Lincoln urging him to strike the Confederate Army. Thomas delayed the attack for nearly two weeks, citing freezing temperatures, full-blown ice storms, and limited cavalry support, but his superiors were unimpressed. Grant was on the verge of sacking Thomas. Tell us about Major General Thomas was he part of Grant's inner circle? You know, I don't know that much about the uh, Union Army. You know, Thomas is, was known as the Rock of Chickamauga. He, he saved the Union Army after they were defeated at uh, Chickamauga, retreated north back to Chattanooga. He held off the uh, Confederate troops and allowed the other part of the Union Army to make it back to the safety over you know, in Cemetery of the Ridge and Missionary Ridge and back, back into Chattanooga. So he apparently was considered a, a very capable general and why he was placed in charge of the of the troops in Nashville. Of course, there wasn't much going on when he for two years when he was here in Nashville. It was essentially a supply depot. They brought wounded men from other battles around the uh, south uh, back to Nashville for, for treatment. And uh, they spent a lot of time uh, building stuff. And uh, there's a, there are a lot of drawings. They, you know, they had a lot of engineers that didn't have anything to do, so they made drawings of uh, bridges and buildings and all kinds of things just just to pass the time. But they were, you know, rested, well equipped, well supplied, and uh, just basically chopping at the bit for something to do. And uh, Thomas was apparently, you know, slow to move, and that that angered Grant a little bit. Uh, I mean, Grant was not happy that he sat on his hands for, for the two weeks and the weather was terrible no doubt but with the superior force that he had he he could have moved sooner and, and could have moved probably done more than he did grant actually had john logan who was a war democrat politician in uniform but a fighter as we know grant loved uh and and he knew grant knew him from other campaigns he was en route to affect thomas's relief and the weather intervened um Tell us about the elements that the Army of the Union had to suffer through. You told us how beleaguered the Confederates were with their ragtag outfits and no shoes. Were the were the were the Union sitting pretty comfortable and warm in Nashville? Absolutely. You know, they they'd been here for two years, so they just built stuff. You know, they built barracks, they built uh, supply depots. They were supplying Nashville both by railroad and by river, uh, the, the Cumberland River. Uh, it gets low it did at that time uh, in, in the in the uh, summertime so they built a, a rail spur from nashville over to the tennessee river so they could continue to bring material up the tennessee river and then transport it by rail into nashville so in nashville was a rail hub the uh, nashville chattanooga and st louis railroad was founded 
in the early about 1845 and the Nashville, uh, the Louisville and Nashville Railroad about the same time. And they had built tracks to the north with the LNN and the NC and St. Elvis and Nashville and Chattanooga actually. Uh, towards the south, they built tracks down towards Chattanooga. So the rail played a big part in helping supply and move troops throughout Tennessee. They could move troops a lot quicker with the use of the rails. So that's what made Nashville an important hub. So, yeah, they were sitting just fat and pretty. And they brought, uh, you know, they were able to bring, they brought some troops from, from Minnesota who were battle-hardened. They'd been fighting the Indians, apparently, out in the Midwest, uh, upper Midwest, uh, while the war was going on back in, you know, in Virginia and in the, in the South, uh, Georgia, and that area of, uh, for the first part of the Civil War. So they brought a significant number of hardened troops to Nashville right before the battle began, and they arrived just in time to, uh, you know, take a, a key part in the attack on the Confederate lines. Wow. And the Union Army, uh, they were basically a hodgepodge. They were Army of Georgia, Army of the Tennessee, United States colored troops, but uh, three and a half to one, as you said, 23,053 for Hood that day, 71,842 for Thomas is what I was able to find online. Hopefully that's true. And 5,000 of those were fresh ones from Mississippi Valley, uh, like I said, and they used a diversionary assault on the right and on the left, the bulk of the Federals outflanked and overwhelmed the left of Hood's line, just a six mile east-west line, or maybe you said eight. Yeah, Where... it, it actually, you know, but the first day before the battle actually began, the Confederate line, the Cumberland River makes uh, two big loops around Nashville. And the Confederate line ran from the uh, Cumberland River on the west near Charlotte Pike, uh, that's still there, and uh, all the way around, almost to the river on the east, uh, actually ran uh, to uh, the uh, Nolensville and the uh, Burfersboro Pikes, on the turnpikes on the on the east side of the line. So uh, it was a pretty long line, but they, they weren't as full from about maybe a mile or so from where the Bell Mead area is now in Nashville over to the western flank. And the line basically ran along Hillsborough Turnpike to the south, made a right-hand turn from west to east along what's now Woodmont Boulevard over to uh, uh, some some hills that uh, on the eastern end of the right flank of the Confederate line. Hmm. And the uh, the it, in the battle, the uh, the right the eastern flank of the Confederate line held pretty well both days. U.S. colored troops that were on the western flank of the Union line took significant losses both days, particularly the the first day they mounted an assault on what was called Granberry's Lunette, which had some artillery and it was kind of flanked on one side by a deep railroad cut. And unfortunately the the Confederate, the uh, colored troops were not very well commanded and they were sent on a mission. They, they, got, they came in to attack. They were basically walked into an ambush and uh, to escape it, they leaped down into the railroad cut, which literally made it like shooting fish in a barrel. And they suffered significant losses. And and then the second day, they made two major assaults on the again on the eastern flank of the uh, Confederate line, which was uh, you know on a on a hill, a peach orchard hill, and it had probably one of the stronger parts of the Confederate unit at that side and they repulsed them but they you know they took they took again took heavy losses but the, the even the confederate that, that peach orchard hill they repulsed four brigades of the unions attacked that was a pretty that, strong yeah, but, yeah, defense 
Even it's some a, of the Confederate officers commented on the bravery and the toughness of the colored troops. You know, they were not well trained. Most of them had enlisted fairly recently, and they gave them a gun and a and a uniform and sent them into battle. So, you know, it was it's kind of like uh, a glory uh, in, in in real life. <laughs> mm-hmm. Now, if somebody came as a tourist or even a local wanted to, and they wanted to take like a west east or east to west tour of that entire strip, six miles, would they see? uh markers and monuments to these battles would they be able to actually see it or is it all paved over parking lots now it's mostly residential and commercial parking lots there are the we we own a little piece of property where redoubt number one was located it was the corner of the uh, the left flank of hood's line on on the first day of the battle uh we there's a we have three cannons there and it's an empty lot, but there's some, some markers and the description of the battle. Uh, the other redoubts ran along Hillsborough Pike. There was one right across due south from redoubt one, maybe a hundred yards south. It's covered up with an apartment complex now. There's a small remnant of redoubt number three behind a church property on the Hillsborough Road. Uh, there's a small portion of redoubt number four, which is at the back end of a big residential uh, gated development, but there's a marker there. Readout five was on top of a hill, uh, sort of right above the Harding Place Hillsborough Road intersection, and there are markers along there. There are quite a few markers describing the battle at different points, but the uh, most significant, I mentioned Granberry's Lunette, which is on the right in the right flank of the Confederate line the first day. It's uh, it's in an, in an industrial area, but the, you know, the Lunette is very apparent where there was earthworks and where they had an artillery uh, unit mounted. The Shias Hill is the most, and well, Peach Orchard Hill is there's a school and athletic complex located on the top of Peach Orchard Hill. I mean, you can see where it was and what was there, but you know you can't really go up there to see much. Shias Hill is the biggest uh, part that's left, and that was the first piece of property that the our organization was able to acquire and raise some money and with some help from some donors the city owned the top of the hill they had a reservoir up there and they through the tennessee historical commission you know gave that to the to the site and the organization was able to buy some lots below that down to the road we're actually in the process of trying to acquire a couple of more lots right now with the assistance of the american battlefield trust but it is uh, there's a trail up the hill uh, in the wintertime, you can you can get a great view of where the battle was fought without the leaves on the trees. It's a pretty high hill and looks northward towards where those readouts were and where the lines were the first day. And then when they dropped back the second day, they were more along uh, what's now called Harding Place and Battery Lane runs from west to east. And uh, there were a couple of artillery units along that. Uh, that's why the Battery Lane, there was a, uh, there was a Louisiana French-speaking unit called Point Coupe, which was sort of right in the middle of the line and actually helped them hold off the Union attacks for a long time before they finally uh, broke through up on Shies Hill when they met the end, you know, and they were antsy to, to attack. They shelled Shies Hill from two different directions basically all day long, and you don't tell how many shells were fired onto the, the unit up there, and they had maybe three cannons to fire back a little bit, but they had been able to scratch a little bit of a of an earthwork and then get down behind some some fell trees but it was pretty pretty much exposed and you know the union army when they finally did make their assault about 4 30 in the afternoon that time of the year it was dark or almost dark and they were the uh, confederate line on top of shy's hill unfortunately was kind of like on lookout 
mountain, they were they they were too far back from the military crest. They were not able to really fire down the hill at the charging uh, Union uh, unit uh, soldiers. So they were shooting over them for the most part. And by the time they crested, they were right up on the Confederate. Uh, soldiers and they uh, they had they were also from where they were located there was a union cavalry unit that had made its way there's a valley that kind of below shy's hill around behind it a little bit to the west and south they could see the union cavalry behind them and do this is not good <laughs> and with the attack coming from three sides on the you know from the front the guys that were up there finally when uh, uh the general gave them the from he said you know boys it's every man for himself and they were able wow. to escaped down Granny White Pike and through a gap in the hills to Franklin Pike and, uh, you know, and on southward. Wow. Well, thank you for that. That was amazing. Brigadier General John MacArthur at Compton's Hill. Tell us about him and Colonel William Shy of the 20th Tennessee. He died defending that hill and it's now renamed in his honor. Do I have that right? It, it is. It was renamed for him. He was young. He was, uh, I think, 24 years old and had been given, you know, a couple of... Uh, promotions and you know who had who had lost seven or eight generals uh and in, in franklin and a lot of first line officers so they had to promote a lot of people that had really had no experience commanding troops and william shy was probably one of them he probably i think he had been a captain maybe uh before that uh before franklin and uh, he was killed in the battle you know his he was born on a farm that was held midway between the, the green hills area of nashville and franklin uh so uh, his he was in he was buried there and uh, he was they, they renamed it in his honor after the battle and uh, it was Compton's Hill before that and um, you, you asked about somebody else it was uh, uh, General MacArthur John MacArthur yeah MacArthur and uh, you know he he led the troops the Minnesota troops that uh, made the assault mm. uh, he was ancient and finally I think he finally without clear commands from from Thomas just said we're going <laughs> and uh, and made the attack. And, uh, so you know, in the six months of campaigning, the Army of Tennessee, which uh, well, we've been talking about the whole time, it lost nearly 75% of its fighting force and ceased to be a serious threat to the Federals. The Union victory at Nashville shattered Hood's Army of Tennessee and effectively ended the war in Tennessee. Following Nashville, the fall of the Southern Confederacy was now just was a matter of time. Was the Battle of Nashville... December 15th and 16, 1864, the decisive battle of the entire Civil War? You know, in some ways it probably was because it marked the end of the war in the West, which they referred to anything west of the Allegheny Mountains. That was the end of the Confederate Army in, in the West. And so any hopes they had of you know even getting back and reuniting with Lee in Virginia just wasn't going to happen. And as you know, it was only a matter of like four more months that the uh, Lee was able to hold on and finally, you know, surrender in Appomattox. So when that was the the last significant battle of the war in the West, and it ended the war from the Confederate standpoint at that point in time. And the West needed left Lee on an island up there, and you know, trying to hang on, and uh, which we we know how that ended. Yeah, historians castigate Hood for for defeat rather than awarding Thomas the honors actually for the culminating uh, Nashville victory. Military historian Matthew Forney Steele said, of all the attacks made by Union forces in the course of the war, none other was as free from fault as this one. 
author of the definitive study of the Army of the Cumberland, himself a veteran of that underrated Union field force, Thomas V. Van Horn suggested, seldom has a battle been fought in more exact conformity to plan than Nashville. Was it really so well done or did Hood just fail? Well, I think that, you know, years ago I had a partner, a law partner that uh, was a West Point graduate and had the uh, unique name of Nathan Bedford Forrest Schoaf. (laughs) <laughs> he was actually born on an island in the Mississippi River uh, over you know, north of Memphis and uh, went to a small private school down in Bedford County, Tennessee, and then went to West Point and uh, you know, promoted up to be a captain in the Army. And uh, the Army sent him to Vanderbilt uh, to get a master's degree, and he went back and taught at West Point and then went to Harvard Law School and came down and practiced law with us for a while. But he took did a tour for our law firm uh, back in the mid-80s, and he did it first for our summer clerks, and then everybody enjoyed it so much, he did it again for the members of the firm, and we he did it for us in December, so we were there at the time the battle was actually fought, and he described the military tactic that uh, Thomas used as a, a swinging gate uh, that, you know, they were lined up from west to east, but right at the corner of the Confederate line where Redoubt 1 was, they absolutely made, it was like a swinging gate from, you know, around to the southeast, and then they confronted the, the Confederate line all along Hillsborough Pike, so on two sides, they were defending themselves against, a, you know, overpowering forces, a lot of artillery fire, a lot of shells fired, and, uh, the Confederate troops, the thing that they were able to hold out as long as they did, there was a stone wall that, that was alongside the eastern side of Hillsborough Pike uh, that had been there for a number of years where there were farms and things. And so they were you know, pretty well protected by the stone wall until they were overrun. And then the same thing happened the second day. There was a stone wall along uh, what's now Harding Pike, uh, Harding Place and Battery Lane. There was a stone wall, a lot of which is still exi- is, is existent. And they were able to hold out there as longer because they were protected a little bit from the onslaught. But, uh, you know, the, the, the batteries, uh, the artillery batteries were able to rip those up pretty much. So, yeah, I think it was probably a combination of both. It was, it was also took place after the death of Stonewall Jackson, who was obviously a successful general for the South. Yeah, from what I've read over the years, you know, it seems when Stonewall Jackson was killed, the, the, the result of the war was pretty pretty clear from that point on. Lee depended on Jackson so much, and he was such a force in Virginia. He was, you know, he he was able to move his troops remarkable distances on foot. I mean, without the benefit of rail cars and things. And uh, he was, he was, he apparently was one of the great strategists of the whole war on both sides. And uh, when he got killed, the, the end was probably uh, written at yeah. that time. Campaign historian Thomas R. Hay, H-A-Y, said, The once powerful army of Tennessee was all but a mere memory. The sun of the Confederacy, frozen in its ascendancy on the icy slopes before Fort Donaldson two years before, finally eclipsed dramatically on the snowy hillside outside Nashville. Perhaps it was not so much Confederate bungling as superior Union battle management that provided those decisive results. Agree with that? I'd say that's probably true. If you discount the bungling at the Battle of Franklin, <laughs> which was pretty clearly bungling. so Definitely softened them up quite a bit. Um, for those that haven't seen the movie Glory, the USCT were a watershed in American history and one of the first major strides towards equal civil rights. United States Colored Troops, USCT, 
were the embodiment of Frederick Douglass's belief that, quote, he who would be free must himself strike the blow. 179,000 men, many who were former slaves, volunteered to fight in the Union Army. Nearly 37,000 gave their lives for the cause. What more can you tell us about Black soldiers? Well, not a lot. Uh, you know, they did play uh, a role in the Battle of Nashville. As I mentioned earlier, They most of them were local slaves from Tennessee who had been freed and joined up and uh, did not receive the benefit of much training and were thrown into the battle with, uh, uh, you know, without a lot of experience at all, but uh, certainly fought bravely. They were fighting for their freedom and for the freedom of their brothers and sisters. And uh, uh, they uh, acquitted themselves well of the Confederate generals who were opposing them, said they fought bravely. And, you know, even though they suffered a lot of losses, they hung in there and uh, continued to assault. That's the one thing I've never understood much about the battles in the Civil War, how they were able to get troops, especially like in Franklin, that they made a frontal assault and were just mowed down like, you know, like uh, wheat before shears, and then they got them to charge again. In Gettysburg, the same way, they you know, would charge over and over again. And the same thing happened with the U.S. Colored troops uh, here in Nashville. And uh, they, uh, that's, it's, that's always been a, a mystery to me, how they were able to get those guys <laughs> to yeah. go again after they'd got up there and watched all their brothers just, you know, literally get mowed down and have to climb over the dead bodies to get, get up uh, to the ramparts. So uh, that's- Unfathomable, yeah. Fun. All right, just a few more minutes left with you. Uh, Henry Ocean Flipper was the first African-American to graduate from the United States Military Academy at West Point. Flipper was born into slavery. So I don't know if you know anything about him, but I just wanted to add that to the USCT history. Um, did you, do you know anything about him? Wanna, do not, okay. um, American Battlefield Trust, let's talk about that. Uh, can people see all the battlefields from Cheat Mountain to Chickasaw Bayou through there? 57,000 acres in 25 states, I believe. Yeah, uh, you know, I have uh, only gotten to know the American Battlefield Trust in the last year or two. They held their annual meeting here in Nashville last spring, and we hosted a dinner for them. And uh, they have been very instrumental in helping uh, acquire land on battlefields all over the ever, not just Civil War battlefields, revolutionary and, and other battles out west and places. Uh, they are helping us right 1812 now. 1812, too, right? Exactly. Yeah, they're helping us right now try to acquire a couple of pieces of property that we could not touch without their assistance. Uh, you know, our organization uh, was very fortunate when I took over as president we had barely had two nickels to rub together but we were fortunate enough that a man here in Nashville died uh, there was an infamous statue of Nathan Bedford Forrest out on Interstate 65 right. between Nashville and Finn Brentwood and uh, he owned that piece of property that had two cell towers on it he was not a member of our organization but he left that property and some other property to our organization and we were we're able to sell it so we now actually have some funds where we can try to find if we can find a piece of property that you know might be available we can with the assistance of the abt we can maybe become a player but with the, the real Wasn't estate he buried underneath that wasn't that put on his gravesite or at least rumor had it no okay. no it was a, it was a, to call it a, a memorial statue is is a is is giving it more credit than it deserves it was it was made by a kind of a controversial lawyer here in nashville who fancied himself somewhat of an artist uh, it was made out of fiberglass it was probably the ugliest statue that was ever <laughs> concocted anywhere and there was a 
Forrest on the back of it. He looked more like a cartoon character than a, than a true memorial, and it's been removed, finally. <laughs> and how is the trust funded, and, and what else does it do around the country? The American Battlefield Trust? Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's funded, is my understanding. They have a lot of substantial donors, and uh, it, it, the members of the trust itself are it's kind of a who's who of, uh, of American business and professional people who are, who are blessed with a lot of assets. And they are just having to be people who are in, interested in preserving battlefields. And they uh, they donate a lot of money. to. I think Franklin has been the beneficiary of a lot of their funding. And they've never really bought property here in Nashville. They just recently expressed interest to help us, uh, acquire some property. So uh, we're, we're happy to have that assistance. Okay. Um, so in this day and age, when statues of Teddy Roosevelt, Thomas Aquinas, Christopher Columbus, of all people who they are calling colonizer, even Union soldiers like Grant or the great emancipator himself, Lincoln, are being torn down. How do you deal with those that want to erase our history, like the, your battlefields versus, say, put up terror markers like they want to do here in Franklin to commemorate things like lynchings, as opposed to uh, the great uh soldiers who may have had uh, state rights on their mind as opposed to just slavery or, or not even going there with the with the, uh, the the social issues just they don't want the history to be memorized how do you deal with those folks you know i mean i think it's it's really sad and and you know, my children are all still teaching history in the schools. Uh, I, I was an English major at Vanderbilt, but took several history courses, including a course on the history of the Old South and the New South, which was a very interesting. You know, even though I'd grown up in Nashville, I didn't know a lot of the history of the time. But you know, I think it's a shame they have torn down so much that uh, people were honored at a time when for things they did that weren't great and they probably shouldn't have been. I think it's a shame to see that happen. We have a, in Nashville, there's a peace monument that was erected in the early 1900s uh, at a major intersection that was a big novel facing each other. And it was made to, 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 to the South and the North to come together and to you know, join hands. It was about the time of World War, World War One. And when they built the interstate system, it actually got damaged by a tornado in the in the 1950s, early 1960s. And when they built the interstate system, it, it the big intersection where it had been located got obliterated by the big interchange of an interstate. But a new monument was crafted, relocated in a, in a residential neighborhood. It's actually on state-owned property where they had in, intended to have an change and decided not to do it. But that monument, which is, you know, it's not a monument to slavery. It's not a monument to the South. It's a monument to just to the men of both sides and, and women who've lost Un their lives. Unity, basically, unity. Yeah. And, you know, joining me. And it is, exactly, and it has been vandalized repeatedly, mm. and uh, it's which is unfortunate. So, uh, that obviously, the people that vandalize it have no idea what it what it signifies. And it has, a, you know, it has a nice inscription on it about joining up the healing up the wounds of the of, of the past and uh, moving forward and so it's a uh, it's that that's an example of what we're seeing all right well thank you bill for your time we really appreciate it we're out of time here so tell everyone where they can find out more about you and the nashville trust well we have a website which is actually a, an excellent website we have a 
full-time retired attorney who spends a lot of time with it. It has a lot of factual information about the battle maps uh, or the weaponry used. Uh, it's battleofnashvilletrust.org. Uh, we post news uh, items on there. We have a uh, Civil War roundtable group here in Nashville and another one down in Franklin. They meet once a month and we post the notices of their meetings. So uh, people can go on there. We have uh, some books that are for sale that describe the battle in detail. This is about one we have that was done by one of our members, actually, that's relatively inexpensive, very Beautiful. informative of the battle. It has maps, describes the units, and can order it from the website. And uh, so, um, and, and we do, if anybody's interested in a tour, we have people who will actually conduct tours if they're, if they're interested. Wow. Well, thanks again for coming on with us. We really like it. If you're like me and sick of the woke, unfunny content coming out of Hollywood these days and looking for something new and exciting, I found the website for you, movienight.com. The folks at movienight.com, that's movienight, one word, .com, has the first universal loyalty program that offers businesses like yours the opportunity to attract customers with their exclusive lineup of world-class titles. Titles like Daddy Daughter Trip with Rob Schneider, Triumph with Terrence Howard, and Nefarious, last year's blockbuster hit. Movie Night was founded to positively impact society through media. Check it out at movienight.com and enjoy the show. I don't think you got the treble turned up a little high on that one buddy uh welcome to the steven steve segment of our show where we cover what we just heard producer steve what do you think of our sequel to episode 120 battle of franklin with our guest bill osier on battle of nashville well it's very interesting and uh when you get when you get these guys on you're talking about the battles and and this fought and this and and, and i've heard other people lecture on the various battles during the civil war the war between the states and it's always stats and statistics and 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 um theory you know theoreticals how they did this who took this there but when i think about it when i visited these places i've i've visited some battle zones i've i've in our travels through the areas where the the battles were fought i start getting crying i i start weeping i think of the people who died i think of the individuals the civilians who lost their loved ones who lost their land who lost their homes that lost their lives and my mind always goes to the casualties of war i okay i get it we talk about the statistics and all this movement and all that and that's great we we come from a logical right brain or left brain but i'm a very right brain person so steve maybe sometime if you can and that's not to discourage uh, disperge the person we just had on he's a great guest but i'd like to find somebody who's done a good research on the casualties and the costs of war and how things may have been avoided just bring it into a personal perspective so that's my only thought but uh he's a great yeah. guy he's a knowledgeable person and thank you for bringing him on 
Yeah, war is hell on the home front too, they say. And, uh, you know, I was on Omaha Beach and I had to visualize the blood red water and the blood red sand with all of that slaughter going on that ultimately had a victory of uh, democracy, let's just say, over fascism. And it's, uh, it's a painful experience, but uh, the sacrifice sometimes has to be made. Here's a little update for y'all from yesterday. Hello, your account was suspended due to multiple or repeat violations for the Twitter rules. Form letter forgot to change it to X rules. This account will not be restored. This case will now be closed and replies will not be monitored. Thanks, Twitter. No, thank you so much, Elon. I went to the help page and searched for refunds and it says way down at the bottom, all subscriptions are non-refundable. That includes subscriptions linked to X accounts. They remembered the X there that have been suspended. How nice. Note. Contact Apple directly for cancellation issues. So I had to go to subscriptions on my phone to delete it so they can't charge me $115 to renew next year. Thieves. Not going to lie, been going through a bit of withdrawals, not being able to tweet my mind, but probably the best thing for me ultimately to be off it if it's that addicting. But hey, $9 billion more of student debt relief announced by Biden-Harris for 125000 Democrat voters, I mean borrowers, that makes 127 billion for three to six, 3.6 million Americans. That's a lot of pandering for votes you and I paid for. So much bigger trouble than my tweets in a sea of billions of tweets and 33.5 trillion dollars of debt at now 8% interest rates. But it's football season, producer Steve. Do you give a crap? In all honesty, I do not give a crap. It's not yeah. something I watch. Used to be people watched just for the funny commercials. That's gone, especially the mega million dollar Super Bowl ads. Well, they ruin everything they touch, it said about liberals. So I found this article about it in the Washington Examiner. Football in ad world. Politics and PR combined to make NFL ads a bizarre spectacle by Spencer Clavin. Since the delirium of 2020 has subsided, game day political stunts are no longer quite so extravagant or relentless. NFL viewers don't have to endure the regular spectacle of millionaires kneeling through the national anthem to protest their unfair treatment. But the agitprop hasn't gone away. It's simply been absorbed into the background as a set of largely unspoken assumptions which neither advertisers nor franchisees dare transgress. In ad world, this means white men must always be buffoons and criminals. If a joke needs a safe target, they are it. Even before the year of our Floyd, women were pretty invariably portrayed in commercials as the superior sex. But for today's NFL, this is not quite enough. Despite vigorous messaging, there is still what one observer amusingly calls a lack of female representation on NFL rosters. The embarrassing fact remains that professional football is a man's game played by huge dudes who careen into one another at brain-rattling speeds. Don Draper, the conniving ad representative of Mad Men, observed that people want to be told what to do so badly that they'll listen to anyone. Something's being sold here, but it's not football games or life insurance. It's a fantasy cooked up in a lab by people who hate men and women both for being who they are. They would prefer that we be how they tell us to be so they can exploit us for power and profit. No one could be less fit to tell us what to do. Yikes. Sounds like a movie I'd want to see, not go see. <laughs> um, let's start with clip number one. And gender woman. 
I was born with a male body, but inside I always knew I was female. So I transitioned, and now I live every day as the woman I've always known myself to be. It can be hard to understand what it means to be transgender, especially if you've never met a transgender person. In most states, our laws don't protect transgender people from discrimination in public places or when it comes to using the restroom, something we all need to do every day. I've lived as a woman for many years. Most people, when they stop and think about it, they realize that when businesses can legally force me to use the men's room, it puts me at risk for harassment and violence. Safety and privacy in bathrooms are important for all of us. It's already illegal to enter a restroom to harm someone, and anyone who does that can and should be arrested. Updating the law to protect gay and transgender people from discrimination won't change that, but it would help to ensure that people like me aren't mistreated when we need to do something as basic as using the restroom. I'm a trans... That was from the nationwide transgender equality campaign debuted on Fox News during Republican convention seven years ago. The Movement Advancement Project said this groundbreaking new ad depicts the challenges faced by transgender people in accessing public restrooms and highlights the lack of state and federal non-discrimination protections for transgender people. The ad had its national TV debut on Fox News Channel on Thursday, July 21st, during the final night of the Republican National Convention in Cleveland, Ohio. (laughs) Next story. American Library Association helped draft bill cracking down on bans of sexually explicit books. The former president of the American Library Association, ALA, said the organization helped develop legislation intended to combat attempts to remove sexually explicit books from school libraries, according to documents obtained by the Daily Caller News Foundation. The Right to Read Act, reintroduced by Democratic Rhode Island Senator Jack Reed and Democrat Arizona Rep. Raul Grijalva, in April, censors students can access, quote, culturally diverse and inclusive material, end quote, including sexually explicit books, as well as granting liability protections for librarians who curate these materials, of course. The bill is explicitly intended to rebuff efforts by parents and Republican lawmakers to remove ex- sexually explicit content from school libraries, according to a press release from the lawmakers. The Right to Read Act is a direct response to those efforts and reaffirms that First Amendment rights apply to school libraries given the alarming trend of book banning and protects school librarians and other educators in carrying out their duty to protect students' rights to read, Grijalva said in the press release. Lisa Pelayo Lazada, the 2022-23 ALA president, wrote on April 10th, 2023, that the ALA helped develop the Right to Read Act during a discussion in an online forum for ALA members called ALA Connect. Quote, there have been some discussions about if it would be possible to develop other legislative approaches that bolster these protections, she wrote. ALA helped develop one such approach, which was introduced in Congress last year as the Right to Read Act. The ALA has come under increased scrutiny since electing current ALA president, Emily Drabinsky, a self-proclaimed Marxist with Republicans in several states calling for their state libraries to leave the ALA. And for those of you who don't know, this is Ban Book Month in October 2023. I wonder if that was legislation that they got into. All right. Steve, before you move on, I just want to say. Okay. Uh, the, Last one. These, uh, these guys sure know how to put together the right words. Right to Read Act. 
It just sounds so nice, doesn't it? Yeah, who would be against right to read, right? That's right. Just age appropriate doesn't matter, just the right to read. Yep. Although they're not teaching them to read in school. No, so no, they are. Kind of con- it's a hypocrisy all over the place. All right. We lost Diane Feinstein last week. Not lost on her way home from the store, but she died. She was 90. Uh, I could do 10 shows on her and how I actually knew her. And she wrote my endorsement for taking the foreign service exam back in the 80s. Um, you needed an elected official to do that, and she did for me. So I'm grateful. But people should know this about her as they remember her fondly and do their celebrations of life on the TV, aside from being rabidly pro-choice. Have you ever heard the phrase, as California goes, so goes the country? Yes, I have. Well, that became a thing only after the Battle of Franklin, where the South almost won the war, which would have probably extended slavery, but also codified states' autonomy, states' rights, we call it now. We just heard the story of the Battle of Nashville the next few days after Franklin that forever gave the Supreme Court, Congress, and presidency in D.C. supremacy over the many states, as well as freed the slaves, which was good, supremacy bad. So fast forward 100 years, and here are the people that ended up shaping that as goes the country. Hundreds of members of Jim Jones's People's Temple committed mass suicide or were murdered. Over the next few days, news trickled out from the jungle of 300, 400, 600, and finally more than 900 poison cultists, most of them from San Francisco Bay Area, including many children, and of a congressman, Leo Ryan, ambushed and assassinated as he left with a dozen or so apostates whom he had rescued. Then, the Monday after the Thanksgiving weekend, San Francisco Mayor George Moscone and a city supervisor, Harvey Milk, the first openly gay non-incumbent politician elected to office in America, were shot and killed in City Hall. Jim Jones's Bay Area was the same milieu that gave rise to the Zodiac Killer, the Lost in Time zebra murders, and the depredations of the Symbionese Liberation Army. Jim Jones's connection to mainstream democratic politics has been suppressed. He and the People's Temple, which exalted racial diversity and social justice, have been cast as harrowing examples of Christian religious extremism, though Jones preached atheism and ordered his followers to use the Bible as toilet paper. A roster of leaders who remain dominant figures in California politics today, back then, embraced Jones publicly. Jerry Brown, then governor of the state, approvingly visited the People's Temple, and Senator Dianne Feinstein, who ascended to the mayoral upon Moscone's assassination, joined the Board of Supervisors in honoring Jones. Willie Brown, longtime speaker of the California State Assembly, a mayor of San Francisco and a mentor of Senator Kamala Harris, was especially lavish in his praise of Jones, calling him, quote, a combination of Martin Luther King Jr., Angela Davis, Albert Einstein, and Chairman Mao, end quote. You can read all about it and her in Cult City, Jim Jones, Harvey Milk, and 10 Days That Shook San Francisco by Daniel J. Flynn. And now you have a governor, former mayor of San Francisco, first in the nation to allow gay marriage before Supreme Court made it law of the land, Gavin Newsom, nephew of Nancy Pelosi, same Jones cult roots, who has now appointed both of the two U.S. state senators from California, one of which is a Maryland resident, besties of vp harris a woman of color self-described marxist lesbian hmm where have we heard that one before oh right president american library association and the aft teachers union president ms randy oh and lafonza butler california's new sworn in senator from maryland 
via Mississippi, she's president of EMILY's List. EMILY's List is an American political action committee that aims to help elect Democratic female candidates in favor of abortion rights to office. So goes the country. There goes the neighborhood. Clip number two. The, the first woman and the first mayor to be asked to go through an interview process. And I view that as a major opening of a door and something that's very important to do. Uh, I've had enough people come to me and say, you know, there's no reason why you shouldn't to believe that it is important to do this. I also believe that in the interests of the party and in the interests of victory in November, it is very important that that door be open to a broad selection process and that people, uh, women, minorities, mayors, senators, uh, be considered in a careful way so that the strongest possible ticket can be put together. That was a much younger, much more cogent, that was 1994, Die Fi, Diane Feinstein. What could have been is what we are seeing now, if she had been vice president, only sooner. Interesting year, 1984. Don't forget, a Chinese spy managed to stay by D Senator Dianne Feinstein's side for nearly 20 years. Okay, rest in peace, DiFi. Steve, did you know this? The first court award in a vaccine autism claim is a big one. CBS News has learned the family of Hannah Poling will receive more than $1.5 million for her life care, lost earnings, and pain and suffering for the first year alone. In addition to the first year, the family will receive more than $500,000 per year to pay for Hannah's care. Those familiar with the case believe the compensation could easily amount to $20 million over the child's lifetime. Hannah was described as normal, happy, and precocious in her first 18 months. Then in July, she was vaccinated against nine diseases in one doctor's visit. Oh. Measles, mumps, rubella, polio, varicella, diphtheria, pertosis, tetanus, and hemophilus influenzae. Afterward, her health declined rapidly. She developed high fevers, stopped eating, didn't respond when spoken to, began showing signs of autism, and began having screaming fits. In 2002, Hannah's parents filed an autism claim in federal vaccine court. Five years later, 2007, the government settled the case before trial and had it sealed. Oh. It's taken more than two years, 2009, to, for both sides to agree on how much Hannah will be compensated for her injuries. Did you catch that? 2002. Yes. Then director of the Center for Disease Control, Julie Gerberding, who was president of Merck Vaccines until May 16, 2022, now the foundation for the National Institute of Health CEO, stated back then, the government has made absolutely no statement indicating that vaccines are a cause of autism. This does not represent anything other than a very specific situation and a very sad situation as far as the family of the affected child is concerned. She completed her internship and residency in internal medicine and fellowship in clinical pharmacology and infectious diseases at the University of California, San Francisco, where she is currently an adjunct associate professor of medicine. See a pattern here? Yes. California women, watch out. And let's end on this note. Over 350 attacks on U.S. Catholic churches since May of 2020. 
As civil unrest gripped the country in the aftermath of the death of George Floyd in May of 2020, Catholic churches were not exempt from mobs that destroyed property in cities across America. But while the riots and looting mostly died down in the summer of 2020, the attacks on Catholic churches have continued and escalated. Since civil unrest began on May 28, 2020, there have been at least 361 attacks against Catholic churches in the United States, including acts of arson, which damaged or destroyed historic churches, spray-painted and graffiti of satanic messages, rocks and bricks thrown through windows, statues destroyed, often with heads cut off, and illegal disruptions of mass. A new spate of at least 196 attacks has occurred since the draft Supreme Court opinion proposing to reverse Roe v. Wade was leaked in early May 2020, with many, including graffiti, with pro-abortion messages. Crucially, while a handful of the attacks have included theft, the vast majority have only involved property destruction, indicating that the primary motive is not material gain. The attacks on Catholic Church have been widespread across the country, affecting 42 states plus D.C. The states with the most attacks are... Want to guess? No, go ahead. California, 49, New York, 38, Pennsylvania, 21, Texas, 18, Colorado, 17, New Jersey, 16, Florida, 15, Massachusetts, 14, Washington, your state, 12, Oregon, your next door, 12, and Michigan, 11. Hot spots with large clusters of attacks include New York City, 31, and the metro area of Los Angeles, 17, Denver, 15, San Francisco Bay Area, 11, Philadelphia, 11, Washington, D.C., 10. I'm surprised San Francisco even has 11. Boston, 10, Portland, Oregon, 10, Seattle, 8, Chicago, 7, Maine, Fort Lauderdale, 6, and Houston, 5. Some of the churches have been attacked multiple times. Again, Washington, 12, Tennessee, 2. Clip number three, please. Pratt, under fire this morning for suggesting devout Catholics cannot also serve as federal judges. Dogma and law are two different things. And I think in, in your case, uh, Professor, when you read your speeches, um, the conclusion one draws is that the dogma lives loudly within you. The conservative Judicial Crisis Network now firing back with an ad campaign accusing Senator Feinstein of anti-Catholic bigotry. Yep. As she went, so went the country. Stay tuned for my quote of the day. With Columbia, Tennessee-based EnergizeHealth.com, you lose fat fast, simply and naturally, without restrictive exercise or cardboard dry, tasteless food. Revolutionize your health with this proprietary 88-day science from John and Chelsea Jubilee. People report getting off medications and reversing ailments. Energy, mental clarity, and alertness go through the roof. Look and feel many years younger and oftentimes unrecognizable. I know. I'm an alumnus and lost 70 pounds of fat with John and Chelsea and wouldn't have energy to do three shows a week without it. Hit the link in show notes for your free consultation and discount. Money back guarantee so you have nothing to lose but unhealthy fat. EnergizedHealth.com. Hi, my name is Joey Bright, and you're listening to the Mill Creek View Tennessee podcast. Welcome to my quotes for the Dia. 
That's Spanish for day. But before I share, I want to remind everyone to subscribe to Mill Creek View Podcast. That's Tennessee, Washington, and now Florida. Just go to Rumble or Spotify or iTunes, search for Mill Creek View, and hit the subscribe button. Follow us. Be sure to check out the CEO special where I interview great guests looking to do great business. And I really hope you like it. I do not think much of a man who is not wiser today than he was yesterday, Abraham Lincoln. What a cruel thing is war to separate and destroy families and friends and mar the purest joys and happiness God has granted us in this world to fill our hearts with hatred instead of love for our neighbors and to devastate the fair face of this beautiful world. Robert E. Lee. Amen. There are, the art of war is simple enough. Find out where your enemy is. Get at him as soon as you can. Strike him as hard as you can and keep moving on. Ulysses S. Grant. The war must go on till the last man of this generation falls in his tracks. Unless you acknowledge our right to self-government, we are not fighting for slavery. We are fighting for independence and that or extermination we will have. Jefferson Davis. You people speak so lightly of war. You don't know what you're talking about. War is a terrible thing. William Tecumseh Sherman. That's it for this episode. Thank you, Bill for reminding us war is hell and Tennessee was at the pivotal battle in the civil war that made this great country what it was. Could have gone another way. Until next time, this is your host, Steve Abramowitz, editor-in-chief of mcview.us. Peace in our time and glory to God. One year ago today, Loretta Lynn died. A career spanning six decades, Lynn released multiple gold platinum albums, gold albums, she had numerous hits such as Hey Loretta, The Pill, Blue Kentucky Girl, Love is the Foundation, You're Looking at Country, You Ain't Woman Enough, I'm a Honky Tonk Girl, Don't Come Drinking, With Love on Your Mind, Ones on the Way, Fifth City, and Coal Miner's Daughter. The 1980 musical film Coal Miner's Daughter was based on her life. Steve, take us home with this one, Conway Twitty and Loretta Lynn, The One I Can't Live Without. See you tomorrow, folks.
at the county fair. They were looking for America behind every turn, flying the very colors that so many love to burn. I'll cruise the countryside with my dad and my brother, row after row of cotton and corn, moving through this place just like. Any views or opinions represented on the podcast are personal and belong solely to the creator and do not represent those of people, institutions, or organizations that the creator may or may not be associated with in a professional or personal capacity unless explicitly stated.